Outrider podcast, Bad Business, is a six-part series about crime and detective fiction. I'm joined by a pair of shady figures, my friends Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. So come with us as we descend into the seedy underbelly of fiction, where charming crooks, hard-boiled detectives, and femme fatales are all up to some very bad business. Welcome to the Outrider Podcast. I'm here with the ever-faithful Todd and Paul, and this is our, our fifth episode, and we're discussing Thomas Pynchon's uh, Inherent Vice and Richard Brodigan's Dreaming of Babylon. So, Thomas Pynchon. Pynchon <laughs> went to the Navy, then he went and got an English degree at Cornell, then he became a tech writer, and you know where that leads somebody. Yeah, for Boeing, apparently, in Seattle. And that's the last we know of his biography to some extent. We could say more about that in a minute. You're missing out that he's, his teeth, he has weird teeth. Uh, yeah, there's something about his teeth. I've heard that too, but I don't know. The, do you know the full story in that? Somebody said that he was self-conscious about it when, yeah. he was in high, when he was a teenager, but who isn't self-conscious about their teeth anyway when they're 16? So We have like a picture of him from the Navy and a picture from Boeing, I think, and in both of those he looks kind of like a buck teeth. And I read that he had some surgery to repair it, and it was painful, and Mm. that was about his, and so he's just still self-consciously stays private, which everybody likes to call him a recluse. I was was Wikipedia Wikipedia reading, which is probably why I forgot that bag. (laughs) But you're right, the recluse term is really not quite accurate, right? Yeah, he's just... Private. And yeah, he that's, doesn't. He, he, you know, long before there was social media, he was not in the media. Period. From what I understand, he's been living in New York, and had a family. And he writers come through town, and he visits with them, and has lunch and stuff. And he just, he just doesn't do interviews and doesn't do promotion and that kind of stuff. And that's what gives him the, to the point that what it was satirized even on The Simpsons. Yep. There's a Simpsons episode where Pynchon character appears wearing a bag. And that's actually voiced by Pynchon, I've heard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. Still fairly unusual to be able to fly that successfully under the radar. True. Um, Obviously, it's become, it sort of fits with the nature of some of his writing, and it's sort of become part of a mystique. So it's one of those weird things in its lack of a marketing strategy. It is also a marketing strategy somehow. So it's got that sort of weird contradiction, which fits, which is very Pinchonian. Not an easy thing to pull off, but it can work. This person who nobody can sort of find, so then they're curious about him. It it sort of it uh, creates its own marketing. It, or yes, whatever yeah, it is. It yeah. is the absence of a strategy is a strategy somehow, and so. Although I'm sure it's a totally earnest thing, like you said. Yeah, it goes back it's, to. But the, the myth now is such a point that the myth is the thing that sells him, you know, at least as far as what drags the attention. You know, you don't hear anything. He does, he's not, he's not, because he's so private, we don't have any nifty, you know, dirt on him. He's not, 
he is not getting in the way of his work. And that's may or may not be a good thing. Probably more of a good thing than not, but other writers who do what pension does to a sort of a lesser degree, they try to minimize interviews, but they'll still do a few. And he's just kind of a, I suppose the next step down from Salinger. I'm, I don't know. Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah. There are other writers who do stick to their guns and just write their books and they don't do tours and things like that. Most, I don't, I mean, we could sort of make that the discussion, which I don't think we want to do, but yeah, most publishers would not allow that, would they? I mean, Pension's been able to pull it off because he got started with it and it was yeah. sort of rolling along before the new the new uh, strategy, well, which is authors have to get out there and help a little bit. That's kind of the whole thing now in particular with everybody. I mean, in all aspects of publishing, if you got if you got started before the uh, the age of the internet or you know the uh, mass conglomeration of the publishing houses, then you could do interesting stuff. You could step back from the work. You could be reclusive. You could you could uh, experiment even. And now it's like if you've got a thing, you're a brand, and so you've got to, you know just come out with the latest model edition of, of what you did the last time. And so, and you've got to go do a few readings. So I get what you're saying. Now when you're saying it would be tough to, to do that, it, it would almost not be allowed. Cause I don't think it's that hard to disappear. If you, who if in you, our you know. generation is being allowed to do that, you know, there's gotta be a few people out there that would like to be about, about that under the radar, just because writers tend to be like that anyway. Some people don't like to get up and give speeches. So, yeah. I, I mean, so if they could get out there. of it, they would. I think, I think you're probably right. And in this day and age, it's, you know, where some people seem to document every minute of their lives. And there's some writers that do that too. Yeah. Writers that I like. I mean, I'm not saying this is a negative thing. A lot of writers are now are on, they're on Twitter. I mean, I'm not that much of a social media person, but even then you sort of, if you read a good book, then you might Google the author or something. They're very often on Twitter. Yeah, it's hard to think of someone who isn't, really. Yeah. Um, so I should go on with the pension background. I never actually sure. got to his books. Go for it. Okay, so <laughs> 60s, he, he writes he writes V, and he writes uh, The Crying A Lot 49, and those sort of establish him as a literary figure crying a lot 49 is one that that we might bring up again because it is the one that sort of you know has a sort of an ancestor of inherent right. vice in a way um but then in uh 70s he or you know 71 i don't know when he writes gravity's rainbow which wins a national book award and sort of makes 74. his yeah, yeah 73 yeah. 74 makes his uh reputation and since then he's managed to put out a book you know Seven years between, ten years between these last two. This one in 2009, Inherent Vice, and then 2013, I believe, Bleeding Edge, I think are the only ones that are quote-unquote detective novels. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, he has so many characters and so much going on in the novels. I'm sure there's, and the pension people are really good at keeping track of all this, so I'm sure I'm missing something that somebody could yell at me about, but I would say that these are actually the first ones where they're actual detectives and they're detective novels. Right. And he's now written two in a row at the, 
you know, I don't want to say the end of his career, but I mean, he's in his eighties yeah. now. So that's maybe something. In the something. twilight of his vigor. You would assume. <laughs> I don't know that. He may be, <laughs> he may be going to live forever, you know, but, um, how success are we ready to go with that? Oh, yeah, go. Where, where are we going? Well, I was just, as you mentioned, bleeding. So, Bleeding Edge, which I didn't read, so I didn't. I, it's, I read, it's, it I goes read, into the detective novel. It, the the protagonist is is a female this time, and she's a fraud examiner in New York City, uh, spanning the days of nine eleven, like starting before and then going after. If we think about inherent vice, okay. then. We have this detective. We actually have a detective in this one, Doc, yep. Doc Sportello. He's even a California detective, like Marlowe. Mm-hmm. And he's, what is it with this guy? Because what, is it, what does Sportello have at stake in the novel? I mean, he's been hired to do a couple right. of things. Does he have a code then? Yeah, I think there's the 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 beach code, yeah. the stoner's code, that seems to be the the best moral code in the novel. But there's also the code that he's worried about Shasta. Yeah, it's the, the 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 he has a personal tie. He almost has all of those categories we started to talk about in the beginning, and none of them really dominates in a way because he seems like he's sort of dealt with the Shasta thing well enough. But he wants. He's worried that she's yeah. come to a bad end as a result of being caught up with. Uh, is it Wolf, Mickey Wolf? Mickey Wolf, Wolf Man. Yeah. It's a personal angle. It's definitely a personal angle. He's definitely been hired professionally, and there there is, you know, there's not not a sense of. Was he really hired though? Because I don't remember. Yeah, Shasta just um, kind of asked him to look into something. Khalil, and that's when he got. Tariq Khalil hires him to go check out what's going on with Glenn Sherlock. Right. But he never got he gets paid. Hired, he gets hired several times. But he never gets paid. Well, that's par for the course for P.I.'s, <laughs> man. <laughs> I know that firsthand. Um, no, it's, 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 it's not, that's not the issue. You're right. right. I mean, you know, the, 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 his, the fact that he has You'd an office You think he could have at least is... negotiated some grass. But right. then it seems like he, they're almost always smoking his weed, too. But... I don't know. There was there were a few places where, I mean, just the confusion of the plot <laughs> overwhelms, <laughs> and so I don't know whose weed it was in a few places. Lots of people do have it handy, and I, I think that's why it was a cool place to be, <laughs> a cool time period to be. I mean, it's a cool time period and not a cool time period. I've always been really fascinated with the sort of post. Manson LA scene because it was a right. So this was what 71, 72? Yeah, I believe it's seventy one that we're talking about. He's right? about set it where um Robert Altman set his remix of Chandler's The Long Goodbye. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and he's kind of trying to do that trippy thing that Altman tried to do with Chandler. He directly addresses in this novel though the, the what the impact that the Manson murders had on the culture. Right, and it comes up again and again and again, as it would have. It'd have been hard to miss. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have talked about Lot Forty Nine, and 
made a point that it, it sort of taps into the conspiracy culture in the wake of the JFK assassination. Right. And the thing that's interesting about that in that novel, the JFK assassination is never mentioned, even though it sort of haunts every page. And, and in, in Inherent Vice, the Manson affair is literally mentioned. It seems yeah. like, you know, you can't go but a few chapters without having that referred to somehow. And there's some weird sex fetish thing going on. They're looking for, you know, people to dress up like the Manson girls at one point. Was, yeah, was that he, Doc or somebody else? Uh, that yeah, was, I think there's, yeah, there's, he, I think Doc jokes about it. Yeah, but it's definitely, there's, it's, it's. Maybe I was just a little swayed by some of the blurbs, but some of this. But it seems like it's more of like a there's there's this they're also trailing this arc of the death of that ideology right on the cusp of of Nixon. You know, after the Manson murders, Nixon's about to happen. You know, and this it's this death of the uh, uh, you know that 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 ideology of the sixties that, that had a you know a real push behind it, an idealism behind it, and that's it's that. We're almost kind of cataloging that death because you yes. get Wolfman who's, you know, got he's <clears throat> first off, you know, this big mega real estate guy has the gets doped up, has the revelation, starts a thing you know, where people can live for free. And the whole book's about, you know, how he gets back to being a greedy bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and the only person who kind of maintains that purity of that ethos is Doc. Yeah, he's very Marlowe-like in that sense. The lawyer, to maybe a lesser degree. Well, another character, Dennis. Sancho. What about Dennis? What a great guy! Everybody liked to live next to Dennis. Which one is he? He's the neighbor who lives downstairs, or no, not quite downstairs. Oh, they, because the, the, because the water bed comes through from the upstairs. Oh. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The guy, the guy who winds up watching the. Uh, Watching the heroin, and oh, thinking it's a television. Yeah, I I forgot the pronunciation guide. I oh, by the Dennis. time I got about halfway through the book, I was back to calling him Dennis. No, it's Dennis. Definitely, no. definitely. I remember now. He just is. <laughs> he's not a Dennis. He's just a Dennis. But he's a nice guy, and so are a lot of the other people that are in the counterculture there. But yeah, they're all about to be sort of swarmed over and flooded by yeah late capitalism. And that's kind of that Manson affair was sort of identified as being the sort of the end of the counterculture, right? Idealism, and so and Nixon just raped the corpse, I guess. Yeah, I mean the the <laughs> vigilant California. <laughs> yeah, thanks for throwing that in. That was a good image of uh, uh, vigilant California. Um, yeah, and I, I think I don't. To me, it sort of fits with an overall pension aesthetic which his physics stuff he's really concerned with this concept of entropy right which i don't really understand because i don't know all that kind of science stuff but people in the books find themselves in very very wonderful nice situations in life that are not really of their own making and then those situations ultimately decay mm -hmm. almost sort of naturally just decay right and in that response to that yeah. they see conspiracies everywhere and they want to blame someone and there are all these people running around vigilantes and and mafia types and corporate types and fbi mm -hmm. types that are very worth blaming 
But ultimately, when you get down to sort of the core of it in a pension novel, it's probably not even really all that. It's just the natural decay of the universe. You have a great moment, and it goes away. So what about this paragraph, then, on that subject? This seemed to be happening more and more lately out in greater Los Angeles. Among gatherings of carefree youth and happy dopers, where Doc had begun to notice older men, there and not there, rigid, unsmiling, that he knew he'd seen before, not the faces necessarily, but a defiant posture, an unwillingness to blur out, like everybody else at the psychedelic events those days, beyond official envelopes of skin, like the operatives who dragged away Coy Harlingen the other night at that rally at the Century Plaza. Doc knew these people. He'd seen enough of them in the course of business. They went out to collect cash debts. They broke rib cages. They got people fired. They kept an unforgiving eye on anything that might become a threat. If everything in this dream of pre-revolution was in fact doomed to end, and the faithless, money-driven world to reassert its control over all the lives it felt entitled to touch, fondle, and molest, it would be agents like these, dutiful and silent, out doing the shit work, who'd make it happen. Yeah, I think he would, he would, there's a sense that 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 is this sort of force of the universe and decay, but a specific historical reference, I think that's just COINTELPRO. That's just the infiltration of the, of the left by, you know, government agents that are, Agent provocateurs and so do you think he's um, a big reader of uh, Elroy because this towards the end yeah. had some echoes, you know, bringing in CoinTelPro and some other stuff like that. Yeah. Had some echoes of American tabloid. It's sort of an anti-Elroy. I never thought of it that way, but there is there is a <laughs> sense kinda, where you know he kind of loses the narrative drive in the middle like Elroy does. <laughs> I, I'm. <laughs> It, I did wander in the middle, yeah. As it's something that's sacrificed with, with. Uh, is it pensions? I've been trying to decide what it is that sort of undermines his narrative drive. I'm interested in Sportello. I like him. I want to follow him around. And there's a few places in the book where I just, I'm just kind of getting him. I know it's pension. I know he's great. And even right. then I'm getting tired of him. And I don't know what it is. It's just the plot's too messy, maybe. Who knows? So was the, is the plot messy? Do you think the plot is messy by accident? Um, the writers, you know, being lazy? Or is the plot messy because it's filtered through Sportello and he's high? The thing is, though, <laughs> Raymond Chandler's plots are about as messy. Yeah, uh, James just... Crumley's plots are messy, but they don't lose the drive maybe they do in a a book or two right but generally chandler you keep he keeps you going right so even though it's messy you're you're still kind of driving through the book on the on the detectives part of it right while enjoying the narration too i don't know if it's the it's the style here if the style is just so thick i'm not quite convinced that that Pension's foray into detective fiction actually fits his prose style that well. I'm just throwing that out there. Mm-hmm. I haven't really thought it all the way through. Yeah, that's an interesting point because the earlier novels sort of use elements of the genre, and yet these are actually using the genre. 
I mean, right. this inherent vice is a detective novel. And so you're sort of questioning if just that questioning sets if you as, uh, gives you false expectations as a reader that you're going to be able to track the plot. And well, that I'm going to be just driving through the book from an, an interest level. And right interested enough in the plot to wonder what's going on and at some point it just feels like we know that Mickey Wolfman's missing and we know that the boat is out in the bay sometimes coming back and forth and there's this talk of what is it Lemuria I didn't look up how to I I was fascinated by Lemuria and some of those scenes where it sort of comes in right the hallucinations I love that stuff that was great stuff somewhere in there I did kind of lose the lose the incentive and yeah, I, don't I don't know what know. happened i don't know I, I i mean i guess was it after he came back from vegas was that when you kind of lost it i don't know <laughs> I don't... <laughs> when did he come back from vegas well after stopping at the at the after making the bet to the, on see whether, the zones yeah after he goes on the way back to see the zones and he's and he has that wandering around out there and then you know it's after he places that bet with the with the uh, uh, with the casino on on you know whether or not Wolfman will come back and how he wins and gets ten thousand dollars then yeah so that's how he got paid he didn't get paid by any of his clients <laughs> I, I guess I was surprised this time I've read this is like I think the third time I've been through it and I was surprised with how coherent it seemed because I think I remember the first time too in any pension novel there there is this sort of sense of um, you just sort of get lost in this world. And if that world is not at a very high level of entertainment for your imagination, it could be pretty easy to right. lose the thread. But I think the the plot's actually sort of vaguely coherent. <laughs> Maybe it is. Now that I read it three times. <laughs> it's va- it is. I don't know if it was just the sort of... Um, a lot of the scenes, the character, the talk is similar. Yeah. And I couldn't tell if some of it could have been cut. I hate to say that, but it's kind of like the scenes went on a bit. And it, I just felt like it could have been a little tighter. You can't really say that about a pension novel, probably. But uh, well, you can see why not. I mean, my my only other experience with pension is The Crying of Lot 49, which was a nice short little book. It's shorter than this one. But... Um, you know, my, my recollections of that and this one together is that there's a certain amount of, I guess you would call it almost magical happenstance, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff just appears, you know, out of the blue to, to shift the, the plot to, and he's, that's maybe part of what's the mystery thing he was doing before and how he's trying to do the whole thing. And so, you know, and Mason and Dixon's been sitting on my shelf for 20 years and I haven't read it. Um, I might have lost it actually in a move. I don't know. Anyway, um, but my kind of impression, just from what I've read about him and what I've read through these two books, is that there is kind of in a, in a Joycean way this, this tendency of him to, to construct the, po- the prose in in a way that it mirrors something or reflects something else that he's doing. Mm. So doesn't he have a, another novel out there that's 
that's written in various early prose styles. That's it's probably Mason and Dixon. Maybe, yeah. And could be against. So if my thing, my thing is, you know, when he started, when the story did start wandering, because I did get lost, you know, right after they got back from from the trip to Vegas, it did kind of tend to drift for me. That's why I was trying to pinpoint when it started to drift for you. And I chalked it up to, oh, it's, you know, it's a pot smokers narrative. And so it's, he's getting fuzzy because, you know, he's stoned or he's high. Are we getting this filtered through that, you know, sense of, you know, of dazed and confused and wandering. And I was just, was waiting for a munchie scene and I guess we got some, but. I think that's it's something like that, but but it's not just that he's inhabiting the reality of somebody who's stoned. Uh-huh. Pynchon seems to me willing to to want to explore uh, something as a metaphor, and by gosh, it's going in the plot, whether right. it slows down things or not. And the thing that jumps to immediately to mind is I don't know if you remember they're they're in the restaurant. I'm trying to remember, think who he goes to the restaurant with, but there's the hedge. Like the fake plastic hedge in the restaurant. I think that's with that, the lawyer. Is he go there with Sancho? Sancho. Yeah. I think he does go with Sancho. Yeah. And but that Nikki's that, thinking he's gonna reach back in there and root around for some drugs or something that somebody dropped back there. Yeah, and something like that will show up and get a bunch of description, mainly because I think Pynchon sees that as metaphorical or some concept he's trying to say right. about decay or the notion of memory and things getting lost in memory. Right. You know, it echoes the, the, the scene near the Eldrano, the drug dealer, his, the, the, uh, like, um, uh, not river, but the place out there where they dredge it. The and canal. Every, yes. It's yeah. a canal. That's a good word. Everybody, everybody has to run out and look for their stuff. <laughs> right. And so there's that hitch. So things right. like that right. will come up again and again in the novel that, that really, you know, stopping and looking at a fake hedge in a restaurant or being worried about what's going on in this canal have nothing to do really with figuring out Doc, figuring out what's going on or us knowing, right. you know, who's behind what. But they're metaphors that Pynchon is determined to have in there. And if I had to pinpoint something that maybe is a problem for narrative drive, I bet that might be it. What do you think of that? scene like that where you're reading about this hedge and you're just going like, oh my gosh, why? <laughs> you know. Lot 49 has a lot of that too. The, the, the painting early in the novel where they, they talk about the, the painting as a metaphor. Right. Yeah, it's on and on and on for pages about, you know. I, I, I read 49 when I was a, when as an undergrad, so it's my memories of it are just very blurry and impressionistic at this point. It's, so do we think of Doc then as the... Is he sort of a variation on the knight errant, or is he picaresque? He's a little bit of both, isn't he? I think it's. I think he's obviously picaresque, but I think that, that your point about him being the knight errant is more insightful. We don't. I don't think we think of that that way. But he is the one guy that has a pretty strong code all the way through yeah. here. It's not the same code of bourgeois America, right? You know, being on a substance is not a problem. Having casual sex is not a problem in this code. But it's a pretty darn good code when you compare it to what's going on at Parker Center and the yeah. LAPD. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and the cop, what Bigfoot, Bigfoot, and the whole <laughs> LAPD and the whole Republican. The uh, the characters thing. in this whole thing are just constantly living in terms of what they have to do, right, to get around. 
they know that they actually can't t- tell the police anything. Well, I don't know. My opinion of Bigfoot kind of softened the later I got into the, the, into the story. By the end of it, I, was, I didn't think he was such a terrible guy. It, you know, when, when he first shows up, you're like, what a fucking dick. But, you know, he's still manipulative as hell, but at least, you know, he, he was trying to do something decent within the system he had himself locked into, trying to find out who killed his partner. Or at least, you know, get his, that killer taken care of. But still, yeah, it's very... Well, and any character that comes along is going to be interesting in a way that we don't associate with other detective novels because Bigfoot calls himself a Renaissance man, and he kind of is. He has interests. <laughs> I mean, which which person is it? I think that Mickey Wolfman's wife, right, is the one that's into like cinematography. Yeah, and she's she like offers this running critique of this one cinematographer in his work. So every character who shows up, even people that you would assume would be very simplistic characters right. have these wild esoteric interests that they'll just bust out in the novel. So that too is also leads to tangents. Sloan. So what do you think all the, uh, the fictional bands represented or, or meant? Cause they were mixed in there with a lot of, you know, real stuff. Yeah. But did, did you, you read make- all the songs? <laughs> I I don't yeah. read them. I sing them. Don't you? I thought everybody did. Don't you stop and start singing when you see a song? Not In if I novel? don't know what the melody is. What's melody? Oh, okay. You haven't heard me sing. Obviously, you would, killing me. Smalls. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and that's 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 just uh, textbook pension. Is every novel I think has got people, something. People in it. people burst into song. Yeah. Do you think he likes musicals? I I imagine he likes everything. I don't. Um... So what what are you saying? You skipped the songs. It's the best part, man. <laughs> I just I suppose if I know the I'm kind of like Jason. If I know the melody, then I'm down with it. Otherwise, it's just like reading a poem. It is. Yeah. I don't know. I think you kind of supply your own. I mean, he gives you like a genre of what they're. Or the so, kind of song it is, when they're singing a country song in the in the uh, casino that one point, or, the, right. or it's a surf tune, and you just kind of even didn't you like the one about what's the one about the the pawnbroker man when the or when the repossessed man when the repossessed man come? I thought that that would be just totally blues that you would 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 would, would want to do some little Walter with. I wonder if Pension really cares about the narrative drive that much. I doubt he cares at all. I don't think he cares that much. But then again, I, I, I say that and I contradict myself because it does make sense. Yeah. I think the first time I read it, I think I got to the end, it I thought does. this is just this wild trip and I don't necessarily care that the the plot is nonsense. But again, going through it again and again, you, and you kind of see that there actually is a, you know, the whole Adrian Prussia story and that props up this story and then you know that what the golden fang is at the end and and it does make sense but no i i I bet he doesn't care at all so was arpanet really up and running in the early 70s the the baby internet i didn't double check but that's because that was an use to google i don't know well how nightmarish is the golden fang 
Not very. Man, did you see that guy in the in the heroin dream with the gold fangs? That man, that's scary. It's everybody's worst fear. How? Not, I think it's like the Tristero in Lot Forty Nine. I just I don't know that it's anything. And which it's again is that's where that's where I get my thematic interpretation of these books is that, that as much as there are all these horrible evil people out there who are trying to control us politically. A right. lot of the terrible decay that happens in society isn't really the conspiracy theory is not real. And I don't think that you really, you know, the golden fang is a symbol, not a reality. It's. It's the manifestation of a conspiracy theory. And then by the end of the book, it's dissolved and revealed itself. Is that what you're as as nothing but a bunch of you know, well, BS? Is that what it's? It. It has more power as a metaphor than it does. Right. Just like JFK's assassination being a conspiracy has more power as a metaphor than it does as a historical right. event. Actually, I'm just saying that because I know the Golden Fang is very real and I don't want them to come looking for me. So I'm just going to bullshit <laughs> all the way through this and say there's no Golden Fang. It helps that you're inland. Let me just put right. that That's out true. there. That's you, true. You can't be swept up onto a you're schooner from here. Right. And no schooners on lake shawnee so i'll be okay <laughs> uh, but no i i think that's what i think it is i think I, it's not it's in a way not dismissing right the horrors of uh capitalism and authoritarianism and all of these forces that the the characters in uh, at the beach think are evil but the beach just has to naturally with time go away and if we go to the beach now None of these people are there, and nobody can afford to be there unless you have a billion dollars. And it's covered in plastic. That too. Yeah, the natural part of it is not really a big thing that comes up in this novel, but that would that would be just part of the same part of the theory, that we're, we're destroying the, the planet and culture is decaying, and it's just this big thing, entropy. Yep. Interesting thing about the beach that I thought of. I actually heard somebody else say this, though. I think it was on the Pension in Public pod- podcast that one of the guys said this, but I don't know who to give credit for. But Gordita Beach is obviously a version of Manhattan Beach, which is where Pension lived in the early 70s. And so if you want to have a really fun sort of mental exercise, you can imagine Doc running through his paces and an apartment probably down the strand or up the mm. street, there's this writer, Thomas Pynchon, sitting there banging out Gravity's Rainbow <laughs> on a typewriter. Because <laughs> that's where he, yeah, that's where he really, this time period in that setting is where that novel was, was written. Oh, so overall, what did, what did you think of this one? Where did it land in our in our framework in our pantheon i mean we had talked a little bit about this earlier whether or not he was a knight errand or whether this was some personal thing you know how did this fit um and then we also talked about reading this one as as kind of this departure or um a different take on on the detective novel or at least the classic style of detective or crime novel so what about this makes it different and and a departure or a, a reinvention or an imagining that you think of of the detective novel? Is it just that he's a stoner? Is it 
that it has all this metaphor and allusion to it? For me, the what makes this book unique in the detective genre pantheon is the writing style. That's that's what does it for me. The other writers, even if they have poetic inclination, they stay they tend even Chandler tends to stay with the shorter sentences and the punchier prose. And variations on that are all pretty much in that vein. I mean so Pension's prose style for me is is definitely the departure. He just he doesn't do that. Right. He doesn't he's not mimicking any kind of hard boiled prose. And I don't think he ever does. It's it's always going to be the long, winding, um, ornate prose, and not uh, you're never going to get a Chandler esque. No, and that's not what you go get a pension novel for to begin with. But but yeah, if we're talking about where this fits in that genre, right? I would put it in the the writing style because really, I mean, Sportello, as we've mentioned, he's fairly he's almost you can do a compare contrast with Marlowe. He's fairly honorable. He's kind of like Marlowe. He doesn't get paid, but he still tries to kind of find out what's going on anyway. Right. He cares about Shasta, even though she kind of ditched him for Mickey. And he's a pretty nice guy. Carries a gun, but doesn't ever seem to use it. <laughs> right. Till the end. I suppose the drug culture background is is a departure, but... A pension wouldn't be the first one to have done that. I'm not going to be able to think of any a bunch of different novels at the moment, but I'm, I'm sure yeah. I bet we could if we worked at it a little bit. I would almost want to go so far as to do like a postmodern detective novel as a subgenre of detective novel. Uh-huh. And in that sense, Inherent Vice is not unique. It's probably well. Now it's it's there are tons of novels that use experimental style. Right. That take on the detective genre and embrace it. And I think the reason is Chandler or any kind of classic detective fiction seems in a way a metaphor for the reader. It's got sort of a built-in metaphor in the sense that we're all, to some extent, a detective. Right. Right. We, we, we have a big mystery in front of us and that we don't know how we got here, why we're here, where we're going. So life is a mystery. "Quote unquote." Right, right. So I think that those the you know traditional realistic detective novels sort of have that metaphor built in. What a postmodernist does is comes along and sort of makes that front and center. And so all of the sort of uh, uh, the notions that that weird happenstances mm-hmm. and Lemuria will rise, or you'll go on a drug trip and actually see the future. All those the fact that those things will just simply happen in the novel right. is is because the fact that they're sort of taking this metaphor of the quest for a mystery and just making it obvious. Right. It's no longer uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, ensconced in the plot. It is now the focus of the novel. So in that sense, I I guess Inherent Vice is typical to some extent. Yeah, I'm still trying to sort it out, you know, um, because I, th- I th- like we talked about before, I really got lost after the the return from Vegas, and 
Well, you know, I I would not have thought to uh, to really compare the length of line between Chandler and Pynchon as as much of a marked difference. I don't. I suppose I chalked a lot of it up to Doc. Well, to Doc and the fact that you know you have a writer that's known for being pretty solid on 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 the focalization on filtering the the story through whoever the controlling consciousness is. So Doc's a wanderer. Um so the story's going to wander. That that seems pretty traditional to the detective genre, particularly if it's something, you know, as as a first person narrator like uh um or 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 a very close third just focusing and following that detective is that it's going to that voice, that tone of whoever that you know detective is, is the thing that's going to be at the center of the of the of the narration. So I would not have it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have occurred to me to to think about the the length of the line like that. Um, so that seems pretty standard as far as as I would go. I did not find there was a lot of talk in reviews and in the blurbs and all the stuff that this was you know had comedy and humor in it. I mean, there was a few moments of chuckles, but it, I was expecting something a little bit more funny, and it really kind of wasn't. The long sentences in my mind don't lend to lend themselves to comic timing very well. Yeah, it's a very dry sense of humor. You get a line, and it's not a line that's, I think, overtly. Because you know, when I think of you know, um, you know uh, that a book from that era as as something comedic and and heavy on the drug thing, well, I would lean more towards like uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That one was absurd and it was funny, um, but that was kind of that didn't quite happen. It you know it. it Fear and Loathing had the, the drug culture moved into it, the late 60s and all that stuff like that that was in that weird gonzo journalism running into it. And it was, and, he, and Thompson made it funny. And this, if this was, for, maybe I had some expectations that this would have some echoes with that as well because it's from that same era and it just didn't quite nail it for me. I suspected that I was missing out on a little bit of stoner humor. Just because you know, it was I went to college a long time ago, <laughs> and it's, you know it's been a while, and so I just I hadn't thought you know I wasn't in on the inside joke to a certain extent. I suspect this is funnier if you're a practicing pot smoker. I'm just guessing. Maybe I mean the waterbed coming through the uh, the floor that was funny, but that was just that was kind of about the. Uh... I don't. I, I hadn't really thought about trying to quantify the the humor, so I'm kind of. I I would. I found it to be tremendously hilarious, and and I'm trying to find trying to explain why. And I don't know if I can. It's it's it's, it's <laughs> these dry lines where you just you end a scene. And the, the first one I turn to is just when the, you know he's trying to have a conversation with Sorta Liege, but they're worried about the fact that they can't tell what's on their pizza. And the scene just ends with, "That's a marshmallow," Dina said. So to me, that is a tremendously Right. Funny line. That's not, <laughs> it's not 
ridiculous, like, you know, cocaine flying out the convertible in Fear and Loathing. Right. You know, which made me laugh as well. But this this line, you know, just trying to identify ingredients on a pizza is, is I find, hilarious. And I, I don't know if I can explain why. But it's to me, it's, it's in the lines, the li- particularly lines that end sections where they're just this sort of flat ending and you're sort of left with the really... Right. Uh, utterly ridiculous statement that and some of the language i mean some of the the you know the the jokes about bigfoot bigfoot is always referred to in such a humorous way as far as you know civil rights hating and his, you know his, even some of his dialogue where he makes fun of the hippie lifestyle mm-hmm. is pretty bigfoot's hilarious. a pretty good speaker though yeah and that's again that's that thing with pinching and he's gonna have a character it's not it's not going to be the the standard stereotype of a cop or whatever our stereotypes of cops are. I don't know, but here's the guy who can he's talk. A, he's a creative talker. He's a creative talker. Yes. Yeah. He would fit in an Elroy. It'd be good to take, take Bigfoot. Bigfoot <laughs> is almost like a parody of an Elroy character. I never thought about this, but we yeah. should turn him loose in, in, in American tabloid and see how he does. It probably wouldn't be funny <laughs> anymore though. Yeah. Overall. I mean, I, I liked it. I, I don't, uh, I just, I, I guess I was expecting a bit of a, a bigger bang out of it, and didn't get it. So I just I need to adjust it, my expectations. Am I wrong that it fizzles kind of at the end? Not that I really care. I didn't expect it to get a big bang at the end. But why do you keep looking at me when you say that? I'm I, it's because I'm having to lean <laughs> I, into my. I, microphone no, I know. I'm just kidding. I I am it's all big, about the mics. I'm a big. Yeah, <laughs> got to get that voice right in the tube there i'm a big fan of the book yeah it would be one of my favorites and so does it fizzle at the end no is it funny yeah but i don't know if i can defend that or not i i I said this time through the thing that amazed me is that it makes sense I, i remember my first reading feeling like i was getting towards the end of the narrative in Las Vegas uh-huh. and then with the Zomes and then scenes after that, when we start to resolve the Koi Harlingen narrative and it just kept going on and on. And ultimately I see this time through that every narrative line actually kind of gets resolved. He doesn't really leave any loose threads. Right. Um, to the point where even, you know, Trillium Fortnite in the, in the last, second to the last scene, we, we at least find out that she's okay. And so right. everything that adds on, I mean, that whole last scene with the, with the golden fang schooner is resolving a plot line. So. Okay. I, I didn't expect that, but it's, it really, it really does. But question. Are, are, are his names? I don't remember his names in, in the crying of lot 49 being this. Yes. Artificial. Yes. He got, he in fact had some guy who was going to sue him for the attorney Genghis Cohen. Oh yeah, and Pynchon. One of the rare times when Pynchon did like sort of have a public statement. He issued a statement like in the New York Times saying that if this guy thinks he's the only one juvenile enough to come up with humor like Genghis Cohen, then his problems are not so much legal as mental. And we hope <laughs> hope that he works them out. So no, he's been doing this again. Pynchon, you could go back to the early short stories and follow him through and you're going to get song lyrics. You're going to get pornographic scenes. You're going to get goofy names. But Interesting. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty goofy. Yeah. I, cause I always, 
I never quite know how to feel about those types of names. And I think maybe it goes back to just a moment that I had in graduate school. Because um, I tend to opt for rather normal names and sometimes, you know, gender neutral names for characters. Just to, that's about as crazy as I get with, with naming characters. And I remember being criticized in a workshop oh, no. for, for having these, you know, simple, you know, normal names. And then the person that did that criticizing, you know, turns around, hands in a short story, and people are named like Walrus and Gopher. <laughs> and it's like, you know, are these nicknames? No, that's their name. Why? Was it postmodern? No, it was, it was, it was, the, I remember the story vaguely being something about drugs. You're going to have to cuddle this out because that guy's probably out there and he's going to hear this and he's um, going to be really hurt. No, nah, there's a woman. Oh, okay. Well, she doesn't listen. She's going to be real. She doesn't listen to your podcast. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it is a sort of a trademark of postmodernism and in, in, in a very simple way, it's that sort of acknowledging the fact that we have a story. Whereas a typical quote-unquote realistic uh, approach to fiction right. is that we are holding a mirror up to reality and so what we're seeing is a potential reality. Whereas postmodernists say, well, that's bullshit. We're not holding a mirror up to anything. This is a fictional reality and therefore we're going to have wild fictional right. names. I thought the trippy names went very well with this trippy novel. I mean, I, if ever there was a novel to have... A uh, character named Trillium Fortnite. <laughs> Trillium. This was it. Poor Trillium. Damn, yeah. damn Puck Beaverton. Uh, but no, it's 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 not it's not just uh, this book, and it's not just Pension. It's it's kind okay, of a so thing. Okay, so it's a it's a thing it's a for thing. him. And, and do they have some? Do they have a uh, they have a, a meaning behind them, or some intended metaphor, or, or or an allusion to something? I mean, Genghis Cohen seems pretty obvious. What that one's about, you know, and. I'd say each one probably at least does has, if, if you think about it. Something is just not a uh, just not a lazy attempt at at, at uh, meta fiction. I would say what we've got going on in a postmodern narrative like this is the way that a realistic narrative could essentially be masking the chaos of uh-huh. life. Life is really chaotic with with bizarre outcomes that you can't predict and. Right crazy uh, situations leading to other crazy situations. And to some extent, a realistic plot masks what really goes on. Right. And so uh, speculative fiction, science fiction, postmodern type writing can be in a way giving you a more realistic depiction of reality than realistic fiction. Right. And all of these techniques which seem to be that's ridiculous. People don't have names like that. Mm-hmm. Seem to be gesture to me gestures in that regard. Okay. To say, hey, hey, wake up and look at how bizarre people are. Right. And I'm going to show you that. And part of the gesture is going to be, I'm, you know, we're going to have a guy and he's going to be Dennis instead of Dennis. Right. That may not work, but that's I think what's going on aesthetically. Okay. Hell, I don't know. Works for me. Well, if I'm satisfied, Jason, then I'm. I can explain it to you. I'm set. <laughs> Brodigan, are we ready? Yeah. Yeah. Brodigan, of course, was born in uh, 1935. He uh, um, 
in Washington and had a, a kind of a rough uh, childhood. Mm. Um, his mother had a lot of different boyfriends and husbands, and he didn't really know who his father was until late in life. Um, didn't meet him until late in life. And, in fact, his, his biological father apparently did not realize Richard Brodigan was his son until after Brodigan's death. Um, and, of course, Richard first got uh, recognition as a poet, um, started writing novels in the early 60s, and, of course, spent most of his life struggling with alcohol and, and depression, and spent time in um, a state hospital and was uh, subjected to, I think, believe, 12 different sessions of electroshock therapy. And... His two biggest novels, which, of course, were Trout Fishing in America and Watermelon Sugar, were out in the 60s and kind of made him famous, made his literary thing. His agent managed to uh, secure him a lot of money in the early 70s, so he never really had the kind of financial problems that he had growing up, which is where he would go days without eating and you know, did some uh, minor jail time for throwing a, a rock through a, through a window at a police station. And in the... Uh, the Early 80s, um, his depression and drinking got particularly bad, and he ended up uh, killing himself in, his, in Bolinas, California, and was not discovered for about a month um, until a private investigator went around looking and found him. And of course, uh, now I'm going to do a little plug for a, for a friend. Now, I haven't read this book yet, but if you're interested what, what in... in in um, somebody's experience of, of Brodigan, this book is Downstream from Trout Fishing in America, a memoir of Richard Brodigan. It's by uh, Richard's, one of Richard's friends, Keith Abbott. Keith Abbott was my, uh, one of my professors at Naropa University. It's from Astrophil Press, which is run by a, another friend of mine from graduate school. So it's out there and available if you want to read about uh, Richard Brodigan and... and and his friendship in particular with Keith Abbott and what he thinks about uh, Brodigan's life and, and writing. and It's a very uh, humane book, I, we're told here. Raymond Carver says, uh, Truly the best thing I've ever seen written on the man, you, meaning Abbott, write of him with love and affection. That's obvious, but also with deep and clear understanding. It's really quite good. And a cautionary tale as well, as far as, you know, writers and alcohol and all that good stuff. So, um we're discussing Dreaming of Babylon, which, again, we took, I guess, as part of our you know, departure from the traditional detective and crime thing. And this one um, went pretty damn fast <laughs> and was, to me, quite strange. And we have a PI, but it's not really a detective story. It's more of a crime story because he's hired to commit a crime that he. I suppose the only detective element would just be <laughs> we're not quite sure why they want him to do it. Right. Take the body out of the morgue. We're not sure who's going to hire him, and, and then we're not sure why when they do hire him, they want the body <laughs> taken out. If we care, but yeah. I mean, we're so far into farce with this thing. That right. Yeah. Brodigan seems to me to have a style that's 
like no one else. That's yeah. Is that did it strike you that way, or am I just kind of? I definitely. I've s- never read anything like this before. Yeah. So well, Hawkline Monster, which is another right, Brodigan yeah. novel. Yeah, that's. He's and he seems like when you talk about his biography, there he seems like sort of this odd footnote to the beat writers because I see him kind of thrown in there. I think because of the time period, but he seems wholly different right. in a way too. I mean, he just he seems like his own. Uh, there's just Brodigan, and he's just Brodigan. Is, is that? I just feel like if Brodigan had lived, we would have had a sequel, <laughs> dreaming of something else or whatever. And in that one, C card can't find any water for his water pistol. I mean, Brodigan <laughs> could get a novel out of that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it's something about his style that's just sort of uniquely. I mean, talk about humor. Yeah, he just. He just puts the most ridiculous thing I mean, on the we're, page. Well, sure, we're into the first 40 pages, and he's just finally got some bullets. <laughs> Going around, he can't get bullets. He doesn't have any money. He's got, a con, he's got to con people just to get food. Right. Can't even get money from his mother, who's putting him on a constant guilt trip for killing his father when he was yeah. four. Yeah. You know. It's um, hysterical. It is. But, isn't it? I mean... But like all comic novels, I mean, the the risk is always just that do you have enough going to drive it? Right. For me, this one, I mean, because there's nothing at stake of any value. I mean, it's just you're with C-Card, I suppose, and I don't know what's really driving you other than you're just along for the comical ride. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, you, you want to see if he's going to get some money. I mean, that seems to be the thing that drives his motivation is, you know, is... uh cash because he wants a car and a secretary um, he can fuck. somewhat of a mystery the the socialite who drinks beer we kind of wonder <laughs> just why she is doing what she's doing i think and i don't know that we get <laughs> like how that's the one thing that everybody that encounters her just obsesses about where does she put the beer yeah <laughs> why didn't she go to the bathroom do do, uh, do we really get an answer as to what no okay good I, you don't I said, get any answer on her at all yeah, so there's to some extent there's some mystery there, I suppose, in the actual plot theoretically. But it's really yeah, it's not the point. The point is the what's he saying? Humorous. What is he? Is he trying to say anything here? I mean, okay, dreaming of Babylon. I, I have a theory. Okay, if you want to yeah, for it, entertain for my theory, I feel like you have the, the dream of Babylon as one level of the metaphor, uh-huh. and then. One level above that, somebody's dreaming of C card. And so that would be, I guess, Brodigan or us. We're following right. this fictional dream. And within that dream, there is this dream that we are told has essentially derailed this guy's life. After his, he got his, beamed. Yes. His, his intense imagination, his ability to go to this wonderful place, Babylon, has caused him to fail at the normal social achievements you would expect from someone because he's always distracted by this creativity. Right. And so to me, it seemed like it was a meditation on this whole notion of the creative force and what kind of creative force is socially acceptable and what isn't. And I mean, think of you sitting on your back porch and going off on a daydream about something happening 
and compare that to J.J. Abrams writing a script for the next fantastical. Right. Does he even write? I think maybe he hires someone to, to write it, but he's dreaming up these fantastical ideas. His fantastical dreams are socially rewarded in culture, and he's right. a genius, and you're just a nobody on your back porch. And I think it's along those lines that, that the novel really kind of has something to say in a way, too, about that creative force. I mean, there's guys like Rink who would have none of that, right? and they're going to do well in society because you're not supposed to go off dreaming of Babylon. And those that do, where is there a uh, ability for you to um, achieve or do something socially acceptable with that creativity? And the only answer is in writing a cheesy detective novel. Because <laughs> notice how C. Card's dreams are framed by these cheap movies that he's seen, these right. serial. I personally, I, I just love the subtitle for this damn thing. Dreaming of Babylon, Babylon, a private eye novel, 1942. <laughs> okay. Well, and okay. So, so that fits into what I'm saying is that this idea that, that we have the dream, which is going to only destroy poor Seacard's existence. And the only creative outlet for that dream, which is going to work, is in the form of a well, product. A script for a serial at the drive-in movie or a uh, paperback novel that's going to sit on the shelf and sell. It's sort of a... What about his girlfriend in Babylon? Mm-hmm. Was it Nana Durat? Nana Durat. Yeah, yeah she's Nana something else. Durat. She's sort of a... She's very much a fantasy girl, though, isn't she? I mean, she she always... She's Seacard's supporter no matter what he does. Yes. And she's shaped by those serial... She's the dream girlfriend. Those B movies, right? Affectionate, loving. He's st- he's a loser, but it's okay with Nana Durat. It's because in in Babylon he's not a loser. Yeah, but he's not a loser. True, yeah. He's, so he's right. not a loser there. You know, be interesting to see what happened if he screwed something up in Babylon. So Maybe that would eventually he'd get to that. I dug out dictionary of penguin. Dictionary of symbols. I wonder what you had that you there care? for. <laughs> yeah, yeah read, we want to hear. Yeah, can I read the Babylon right. paragraph? Yeah. We'll see what how this goes. Babylon as a symbol is the antithesis of paradise and the heavenly Jerusalem, although etymologically Babylon means the gateway of God. But although the God to whom that gate led us led was for a time sought in the heavens, it degenerated from a spirit into a human, with all man's basest instincts of lust and oppression predominant. Babylon, wrote Herodotus, is so splendid that no city on earth may be compared with it. Its walls and its hanging gardens were among the seven wonders of the world, but all was annihilated because all was based upon temporal values alone. Babylon symbolizes not magnificence doomed by its beauty, but a vitiated magnificence which is self-condemned because it turns humanity away from its spiritual calling. Babylon symbolizes the fleeting victory of the material world of the senses which, by exaggerating one aspect only, causes personality to disintegrate as a result. To some medieval Irish writers, Babylon symbolized 
paganism. And it is there that the children of Calatin, I suppose, went to learn the arts of magic to kill the hero uh, Cuchillan. The symbolism differs little from that of the Old Testament writers from which clearly it is borrowed. So I don't know that Brodigan was tying in with that or not. Well, it's no accident, right, that we've got a place like Babylon, which was does have that symbolism of the individual indulging. Mm-hmm. And so he's indulging in his fantasies to the extent, the greatest extent. I mean, if you forget to get off your bus, that's... I could signify... indulging. With, having read Dreaming of Babylon, I could signify with this. Babylon symbolizes the fleeting victory of the material world of the senses, which, by exaggerating one spec- aspect only, causes personality to disintegrate as a result. Maybe. Yeah. But... Well, Card's personality is certainly disintegrated by the time we uh, encounter him here. He's totally, all he's worth is just, he's trying to get some money, so he's just not a complete disaster. Right. But even what his goal in succeeding in life, being a PI, is a literary device. Right. In in this sense. I mean, we're not encountering an attempt to render a realistic portrait of an individual struggling with his problem of being too dreamy and he has to get his act together and go live. I mean, we're in a story. The story of C. Card is as fake as his dreams of Babylon. It's as much an obvious literary joke going on. And the P.I. aspect is, is, is funny. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to, to take that. Right. It's whimsical know. humor. Yeah, so I'm saying if we're really, you know, this isn't a real portrait of of someone's psyche destroyed by too much indulgence in dream. I mean, no, I agree. I think <laughs> we get to the whimsical think, comedy. I think Babylon's wonderful. I think dreaming of Babylon is a wonderful thing to do. I think when we get to the end, that if anything, that's yeah. the sort of point we make is that creativity is this this very yeah. powerful magical force. Right. Do we really get Babylon in his daydreams though? It's almost like he's he's brought Babylon to his world. Right. You've got baseball, yeah. pre-596 B.C., baseball season. <laughs> oh, actually, they did play baseball in Babylon. That's established. You just have to read the right, right. right archaeologist. And Nebuchadnezzar sits in a... What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He's in a cafe or... Yeah, he sees he doesn't him. Have see a, he doesn't have old Babylonian things to do. They're not having the birds fly out or anything. It's Right. So it's Seacard's world <laughs> in Babylon. Seacard right. was too busy dreaming of Babylon to pay attention in history class to know what Babylon was. Right. Well, no, I, that I was think, actually. I think. After, I so. think it's just. I might just be a name placeholder for him in certain ways. He gets to throw in the Hanging Gardens, but you know when he when he comes up with uh, Smith Smith versus the sh- the the shadow whatever. That's he. We 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 know we know that. He well, he comes right out and tells us that he pulls in this the doctor. I can't remember his name right now. Doctor, yeah, something that he's gold or something like that. Yeah, that's like he's pulling directly from Flash Gordon. Ming the Merciless was who that yeah. was supposed to be, you know, ripped from, right? So he's pulling Flash Gordon into old Babylon or his version of old Babylon. So it's 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 a pat it's 
it's a pastiche of all these different things that he's just throwing into this guy's imagination. And it's this thing that distracts him from having a, a functional life. And I'm wondering if somehow this is a, um, a reflection of Brodigan's own mental state at this time. You know, this is his post, you know, electroshock therapy stuff. This is the 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 mid to late seventies when this comes out and he's you know, getting close to the end. How is this Did Bro I, I sorry I missed part of your biography, but did Brodigan have money problems? Not at the uh, end, no. Okay. I don't think so. I was was, gonna say he, he had as like, a as a youth very right. severely, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, growing up. But is is a lot of writers have money problems. Yeah. But, in the late 60s, early 70s, his agent did a really good job of, of securing, at the time, what his uh, literary legacy was. So he was making quite a bit of money. Okay. And um, I think Abbott talks about that in, in Downstream. So he was, you know, he was making trips to Japan, which is where his stuff was popular, because he kind of lost favor in the 70s with literary culture in the States, but he was still popular in Europe and in Japan, and I think that's where that the financial stability came from, because um, he, in fact, his third wife was Japanese. Hmm. So, but I wouldn't want to put the the uh, focus too much on Brodigan and his situation, because the the person who is experiencing the pastiche right. and this dream is us, the reader. I mean, again, to me, the sea card narrative is as much as of a of a ridiculous pastiche as sea cards, dreams in Babylon. Right. It's just one level removed. So, who ultimately is dreaming that dream of sea card? Again, I think it's the reader. I think I think there's this 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 weird effect where the book sort of puts you in a state. I right. Mean, like you said, you can read it so fast; it's kind of hard to stop reading. Mm-hmm. And you almost get in the sense where, like, you know, I really got stuff to do. I should put this book down, right? And, you, you know, <laughs> well, you're, so, you're sort of stuck at being in Seacard's dreams. His dreams are hilarious. Short chapters, yeah. comical endings to the chapters with those little wry little twist lines. Yeah. And then you see the next headline for the next chapter, and so, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Smith, Smith, blah, blah, blah. And it's you know, and so you go ahead and you read the next one. So you're stuck in a dream. You're stuck in this in this ridiculous pastiche story. In the same way that C. Card can't quite get away from wanting to be back there with Nina Duras. What I'm saying is, it's sort of I don't know, performative, yeah. or at least it sets this this level where we're supposed to be theoretically skeptical of his guy's problems with dreaming, and yet we're experiencing at that same time how wonderful that kind of creative force is, where you can actually live in your own world. You know, at least I often do live in my completely own world. So <laughs> I like it. I mean, that's 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 what I mean to me, and and particularly as you know, writers. You don't have to be J.J. Abrams to be serious about your art. You you can be uh, published, and you can be. Um, uh, on the tenure track and doing these right. things that are very, that you're going to, you know, s- this person is uh, running for office. This person just got promoted and is a manager. This person just published a novel. Th- these are socially acceptable achievements. And yet there are a ton of people out there who sit down and write their stories and are not achieving that. 
And for them, the act of creative writing is very much, I think, a, a sea card dreaming of Babylon. It still has that magical power. It doesn't have the same meaning in capitalism, <laughs> but it still has that same power. And so I think that we get to the end here, and as ridiculous as it sounds, I think this, this dream of Babylon is... a is is um so what you're saying kind is of that, redeemed is that all three of us here being writers at some point we're going to end up in a cemetery waiting you know to get picked up by our mothers shit i already have <laughs> so um yeah i'm thinking of myself there. i mean I, you know I, I sit down to to try to write a story and in, in you know that that notion of taking it seriously as a uh, something you're uh, accomplishing as a, you know, the, the guy to put uh, opposite of this would would be a, um, uh, someone who's a public intellectual. Right. You know, this seems to me like a very much, it's interesting that it, it is an American novel because we have that different tradition where a lot of our writers haven't been public intellectuals in the same way that a writer would, would be expected to be in Europe. Mm-hmm. So a fact like a writer like Pynchon can disappear, um, that's not unheard of in our culture. But we do have Norman Mailer or someone like that who was a public figure and also a writer. Right. And I would say that, that Norman Mailer would be sort of the exact polar opposite of Richard Brodigan. You know, Brodigan is just, is just not a public intellectual. He, he is exploring these artistic truths for their own selves and not for some sort of broader social acclaim. Nothing against Norman Mailer. Yeah. I just crack up at some of the things that go on in this book as when he goes and he's got to con the landlady. And so he tells her, (laughs) my uncle discovered oil in Rhode Island. I yelled across at her. I own half of it. I'm rich. 20,000 cash for this pile of shit you call an apartment building. 25,000, I yelled. I want to marry you and raise a whole family of little apartment buildings. I want our wedding certificate printed on a no vacancy sign. It worked. <laughs> she believed me. Yeah. And the whole... Yeah. I don't know. I was just asking uh, when I was thinking about this book. So Brodigan's whole approach to his writing, his whole writing career, really, is it a combination of super confident? I mean, most people would not dare to try this even if they sort of had that ability? Uh-huh. Or does he just not care? Hmm. That's a, I, I thought of the I don't care, and that's kind of where a lot of my ideas came from, but I like the super confident in a way, too. I mean, he's going to dream of Babylon. The rest of y'all be damned. Yeah, and he's not going to have any bullets for his gun, which is the most ridiculous start to a detective novel mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On purpose. On purpose, yeah. I mean, that may be explained, at least that feeling that he is somehow a singular prose stylist, because I just, I just have trouble putting him side by side with uh, somebody else. And maybe I just missed someone who... I haven't thought of anyone quite this yeah. far out, just in terms of approach. He makes Pynchon look pretty... I mean, put Pynchon alongside Dreaming of Babylon, and Pynchon looks fairly conventional. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, there's yeah. a, there's a, and I, I think that that comes from this this sort of weird idea of what is a serious endeavor, and I think that Brodigan undercuts that. I mean, well, his whimsy is very serious, and it, it's 
there's there's whimsy, but there's also this this embrace of of absurdism, um, which I struggle with absurdism not because I dislike it, but I sometimes fail to connect it to the thing that people say it's commenting on or reflecting on. I I suppose that's a fault in my uh, intellectual capacity that huh. that I love absurdism. I love, you know, taking something like what Brodigan does here and and I'm trying to remember what of his other books it might have been um Confederate General and Big from Big Sur was the one that I read in graduate school, but I can't remember. But I love it. I would love to do things like that, but ah, I can't. And I sometimes wonder if I'm if I'm laughing because I get the comedy, or just because there's this weird pattern to the language when when in, when the absurdism rolls out its its joke. I so yeah. I mean. Well, even in Brodigan, the absurdism, the absurdism has to sort of hang together and work. Right. Someone else could try this, and it would go off, go off the rails. Now you'd think, I mean, this is off the rails at the start, yet it's somehow the train keeps rolling down the track, as we mentioned earlier. You can't quit reading it. Right. Yeah, mine would descend into, if I tried something like that, it would descend into just slapstick. Right. It, and... I don't think anybody can try this. That's kind of what we're saying. Is he seems really, to be yeah. able to pull off things that other people can't pull off. Right. I agree totally. I've never seen anything quite like this. And the Hawkline Monster was like that too for me. It's just, it's a little masterpiece. The Abortion was the one that I read that was the same way. I've never forgot it. I read it a long time ago and I've never, I remember thinking at the time, yeah, this is just not something... I've never read something like this before. Get my shit together and read trout fishing, you know? Yeah, I think that's a kind of interesting situation. I probably, probably wonder why I haven't read more yeah. of him. Yeah. It's not like I haven't been encouraged to, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know, I just... Uh. When, I, when I was thinking about C Card too, I, I couldn't help but go back to your essay on The Dude. And where does the dude... Big Lebowski. Yeah, and the Big Lebowski. And you could put the dude with Doc Sportello. You very much could, too. yeah. And C-Card. Uh, C-Card doesn't care about being honorable, though. He's just... He needs money. That's yeah. true. That's true. But And the dude... The dude has his own thing. But he's kind of like Doc, in a way. Yeah. And you you made him in your essay on uh, the tarot, if I might, if I may... He's the fool, correct? Yeah. And so where is... Is Doc Sportello the fool? Oh, wow. Just symbolically? Or is he kind of somebody else? Remember, I made Inherent Vice the son. Oh, um, right. But that's the whole package, not just Doc. Um, he, he, he doesn't seem to be as much of a zero Trump as... Talking as about Docker. Yes, Doc. Doc. Doesn't, he doesn't seem to be as much. There's there's a little more level of sophistication there. Maybe he's one of the cards that's a little... He's late. Maybe he's Somewhere a Somewhere else on the symbolic trajectory. <laughs> yeah, because to me, the, 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 the fool is the foundational. is a foundational card in a way that you sort of... 
And that's the thing that, that appeals to me about Lebowski, the dude, is that he's, you know, he sort of undergoes this this transformation in the course of the, the film where he starts to realize that he's, that he's sort of unencumbered and free to, and Doc, Doc knows that. <laughs> Doc's there at the start. He's yeah. already there. Doc's, Doc's almost the world in a way. Ooh, yeah. He's, he's, yeah. He's like at the end of the cycle, which turns around and never ends. I mean, the cycle just right. starts over. Which fits with Pynchon's whole thing about decay. And of course, I guess it doesn't because entropy keeps going on. But I'm going to say that, that anything that good that comes up in the culture ultimately cycles down and decays. But then there are other good things that come up again that replace it. But then they're doomed to decay as well. But I would just yeah. put C card or Dreaming of Babylon in the tarot. That would be. Now you scared me. I don't even know where to. What do you think? <laughs> where does C card go? <laughs> yeah. C card is there is there a wild card in the tarot? Is there a, a joker in the tarot? Is there a trickster figure in the tarot? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't know where to put C card. I'd have to think his, about it. He's his own card. It's just a C card. Yeah, I'm, I hadn't, hadn't stopped to think about just how what a what a scoundrel he is. I mean, he's a really, a really well, self-centered, sexist pig, and 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 peg legs right there with him. Yeah, the yeah. mortician. Yeah, they're in cahoots. Yeah, and Rink really is well, held Rinkin's, up as as having a moral code. It's sort of until the end, right? Yeah, true. But he he gets compromised because of the he yeah. doesn't really have a choice, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, C card is a real contemptible character. I don't really about that much. Do you think you Rink laugh at the so, bottom of where that woman put all that beer? He's I mean, so broke though. Cut the guy some he's slack. Desperate, and he has to dream of Babylon. Give him a break. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of forgive Card the moral lapses because he doesn't have any money, and there's, there's all the foods in the refrigerator is rotten. You know, he can't remember to put all of his, you know, clothes on. <laughs> Right, is it Rink who points out, dude, you've only got one, one sock, sock on. <laughs> All of his uh, contemptible qualities are, again, they come out of our culture. They come right. out of that, the sort of drive-in movie sexism of how he, how he thinks about any woman he meets. I mean, that, that's sort of in those movies, too. I mean, he's sort of a product of someone who sat at the movie theater and watched too many of those Flash Gordon Cereals. Yep. <laughs> Which I think is kind of hard for us because I think that's that's probably going beyond our experience. But that, you know, the film had become powerful in the culture by this point. Right. By the 40s, anyway. And so sitting through these cereals was, was probably... Yeah, I mean, as standard yeah. as kids now know in Harry Potter, they probably would have all. Well, I find it interesting. I mean, we don't. You know, he gets he gets beamed by the baseball, mm-hmm. starts dreaming of Babylon mm-hmm. because of that. Ends up in the in the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shoots himself in the ass when he sits on his own pistol. Could happen. <laughs> could happen. Come on. And 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 so when I first heard that he got shot in the ass, I thought it was because he was running from gunfire. Right. <laughs> That's why it was not. <laughs> there, but as he points out, there's just no way to have that be a good thing. Right. When you're telling your war story. 
It's even worse. But go ahead. But, so it's... I forget where I was going with that. I kind of got derailed. Sorry about when that. you say okay. shot in the ass, it does kind of derail your thought. You were saying that he, he you were going through his chronology. He, he got hit with the baseball. He wound up fighting in the, in the Spanish Civil War. And right. now so, we're back at just after Pearl Harbor. So his, his decay is really, really long, but we don't, you know, kind of, we, we don't get a sense of, of what precipitated the last, at least I don't, what precipitated the last dive into this situation that he's in. I mean, there's, it's a, you get a good flow, you get a good chronology, but he had his, you know, despite getting beamed and starting to dream of Babylon, he's had his shit together enough to, you know, get to Spain, to survive a war. I think it goes back to that idea that he is not following the standard uh, Protestant work ethic trajectory. That's what right. Rink represents, right? Right. Get yourself to work and get to it. And the dream get a real job card. That too. I mean, again, right. the, the the choice of a PI, even for the time period, is a ridiculous. His mother thinks it's ridiculous, and you probably would. Right. But I think that the beating with the baseball and the dreaming of Babylon is is uh, uh, just a symbol, just a way to frame it. I think the guy just right. is, is a dreamy kind of guy, right. maybe Brodigan-like, who is not focused enough to get his ass to his job at McDonald's and get promoted and pull himself up by his bootstraps. Right. And does really that question even make any, that question I had really make any sense within the context of this type of story and the way it's constructed with that with that kind of absurdism does it matter that there are logical or or narrative gaps i mean he does do a good job of of tying clues together when when things pop up and he sees things and he, he does tie them together that follows with the crime and the detective thing you know he sees the the goons coming out of the morgue before he walks in and realizes something's up, and it and he pieces it together not before we he, see the goons. Not as much as he should. Not as much as he should, but enough <laughs> but, yeah. to, that he's not really surprised by their return. He's right, not surprised right. by, he's not, but when, when he ties together that everybody, that this woman has hired multiple people to get this corpse, he wonders why, but he's not, he, he's not surprised by it. It's like, oh. You know, right. Well, I think Brodigan's counting on us all to just be cracking up when she tells him what she wants him to do, and he says, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyone else would say, "No." You know, I, I know I'm broke, and I can't even wash my own clothes, and I have to con the landlady to get a sandwich or, or a stale donut. Stale donut. Yeah. But even then, for you, I'm not going <laughs> to try. Try to steal a body out of the morgue. I Forget think, it. <laughs> I think you might lose your license for something like that. Did he even have? Does he even have a license? California is actually really difficult in terms of its detective licensing. So I never. But thought would it to have been difficult up. in 1942? No. <laughs> back to Doc, Doc talks about being an apprentice, and that's actually very true. You have to apprentice first if I've unless I've got this wrong and it's changed, but you have yeah. to apprentice first and 
California, and it's pretty hard to get your license there. And so Pynchon was pretty straight with that. Brodigan, probably not so much. He does, does he even mention his license? No. I don't know. You may no. not have needed a license to call yourself a PI in, in, in 1942. Yeah. You know, what, just, as what, you were talking earlier, and I got to thinking about, as you were talking, Jason, I started to think about the whole dreaming of Babylon thing and, and when it occurs in this narrative. And it does sort of, maybe you've already said this, Paul, in a different way, but Brodigan does seem to be commenting on just the the trend in in human behavior that, I mean, right at the moments when Seacard, he can almost get to the point where he can relax a little bit. Boy, he's he's going to start dreaming of Babylon then. He can't dream of Babylon <laughs> right now because he doesn't have his bullets yet. He can't dream of Babylon right now because of this or that. But boy, right. when he finally gets his bullets, then by God, I'm, I can, it's okay. I can dream of Babylon for a little while. Right. But I mean, there's some tradition for this in, in world literature because Odysseus, as you recall, right about the time when they, they're about to come ashore, is it in the first or second year? And he, he almost makes it all the way home and he decides to take a nap. Mm, remember, yeah. he's got it made. It looks like they're oh, in. Kind of blows it. Yeah, and that's when he the his guys start to get curious what's in the bag of wind or whatever. I'm. It's been a while since I read it. I don't remember if they open the bag of wind because they're curious or if they think there's money in there or what. Sounds right. But they open the bag of wind and he he's blown off course again. Just this whole thing of the humans and the, the condition of. <laughs> Wanting to relax at the wrong time and one, wanting things to be easier than they are. I don't yeah. know. Quite you got too much time this. on your hand. The first thing you're yeah. going to do is fuck it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, dreaming of Babylon, it's, it's what we do. You've already, you, you've pretty much said this already, but yeah, I was just coming at it from a different angle, maybe. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty complex, I mean, just the notion of what human, the human mind has the power to do in a daydream is pretty, pretty awesome. And I mean, the fact that he, his daydreams are perhaps a little more ridiculous than most people's. Well, he's got a specific girlfriend. Well, yeah, They're right. a little more specific, maybe. Yeah, they are. They're, they're pretty, pretty wild. But then again, it, we haven't been sitting in the uh, movie theater and watching the Flash Gordon Right, right, serial every week, and he. In nineteen forty-two, yeah. you know, this is this is pre-television, pre-everything. I mean, yeah. you don't have anything else to do but sit around and daydream if you're broke as hell and you know have to put in lower wattage light bulbs so you can't see the filth you live in. I mean, what else are you going to do but sit in that filth and true. And, project yourself into something else. And, and the mind has an amazing capacity to, I mean, what he, nothing that he does as much as it, it's kind of ridiculous. It's not unimaginable. I mean, it's not beyond the pale of human, human mentality to do that. Right. You know, um, I, I think that even if your daydreams don't have a specific girlfriend named or a specific place, you are probably capable of some pretty elaborate yeah. daydreams. And that's a pretty amazing faculty. So do you think you've ever met anybody like this guy in real life? Just total incompetent waste? <laughs> but but somehow still charming? <laughs> well, I don't... <laughs> I hope not. No, I, no, I haven't, yeah. But um, 
People don't tell you their daydreams, though. That's true. When I was a kid, I had some pretty elaborate daydreams. Yeah. You know, every one of my stuffed animals sort of had a place on the on the baseball team. They were we did they weren't about Babylon, but. I started spinning. You know? I spun a lot of daydreams as a kid too. Yeah. I went to Catholic school, and so you we, we went to mass to start the day. And right. I eventually, as I went through grade school, got into this pattern of you'd go into mass, sit down, and forty-five minutes right. later, mass is ending, and I missed the whole thing. Right. So, what were your daydreams during mass? I don't remember. Hopefully they it's weren't blasphemous. <laughs> really? Hopefully. It's too long ago. I don't remember church. what I was doing. But the problem that I found, and the nuns had to call <laughs> mom a couple times, was that the daydreams kind of leaked over into classroom time then, too. Right. So I had to, they had to wake me up a little bit. Time to study, buddy. Yeah. I, that's what I'm, I don't think that anything that C-Card does is beyond normal human experience. It's just made absurd. Right. I think everybody's daydreamed. If people haven't, then I feel kind of sorry for them in a way. Yeah, you know, I, I, I did walk into kindergarten and convince the whole class I was getting a pet tiger and that my mother was pregnant again. Right. You should have should have helped your mom with the rent. I don't know. You know, <laughs> the landlady. Tell my mother, my mother has Island. stories about, you know, coming to pick me up from kindergarten and the teacher pulling her aside and going, um, Jason says he's getting a pet tiger. And I had to okay i'll deal with it and then she comes to pick me up another day and she walks up to my own and goes congratulations he's like for what and teacher goes well jason says you're uh you're pregnant again he's gonna have a little brother it's like my mom said no i got my tubes tied after the last one <laughs> and you know and of course my daydreams my you know my mom was a preacher's kid so we were you know it was pretty much family habit to go to church on Sundays. And I was bored to death there. And of course this was, you know, the late seventies, early eighties. And, and my daydream in church was always, you know, inspired by red dawn. (laughs) You were worried about commies. Oh, I was, I imagined, you know, all sorts of, you know, commies and whatever would, would, you know, be, parachuting outside and running through the church and how I would, you know, get out of the church and survive and go off into the mountains, you know, with my school friends and, you know, Wolverines. Except, you can, you, know. you can easily <laughs> get to a, a, a theory anyway, at the very least that daydream life was different when we were kids than it is now. When I was a kid in the seventies, I'm just a little older than you yep. are. Very few college football games and or baseball games were on TV back then. And you had, you know, I remember going to my grandpa's house in Fredonia. He had an old black and white TV. And he had to go over <laughs> and you hoped when you got there that reception was going to be good on Saturday so you could right. watch the game. But you might have to go over and whack the TV. So you listened to games on the radio back then right. a lot more. Maybe people still do it. I, I haven't done it for some time because it's usually on TV. But there was a very imagined world with listening to it on the radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also plenty of evidence out there, I think, that culture tries to uh, restrict that, that little kids have an amazing creative power. And one of the big things oh, yeah. in school is to to cut that back and say, stay focused. Repressive. You don't want to end up like C-Cards. You want to be like Rink and... Yeah. I think yeah. this novel just sort of falls right in that 
that whole divide where, you know, half you have responsibility to people around you in a culture to remain in this world. Right. But you also should have the liberty as an individual to go to Babylon if you so choose. <laughs> if this, if this were, if this were, if this were set in, in the, the modern era, oh. then instead of daydreaming of dreaming of Babylon, he'd be fucking with his iPhone. Would be. Right, he'd be on Facebook in a fight with somebody on Facebook. Or I hope kids still have plenty of daydream in space. I don't think the technology, hopefully. Fighting on Facebook would be the name of this book. <laughs> it's, it's different escapism. Probably. Probably. I'm just trolling out some hope that there will always be a little C card in people too. I I just think that 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 there is something um redeeming in the end about his dreams as ridiculous as they are and his willingness to commit crimes to achieve them. Well, <laughs> situational <laughs> ethics, man, if I if a rich lady who drank a lot of beer wanted me to go what steal a the, corpse from the morgue, I'd probably give that? it a shot. What are we to think about her? I I was wondering about that. The fact that she, she's the real peg leg in this damn thing. She drinks as much beer as she wants, and it never goes. I was trying. I was almost warming up to the idea that she doesn't really. She doesn't exist either. She's. Uh, what do you mean well, either? I, th- I think she exists because Rink walks off with her. But I think right. I think the she read. She does represent a, an illusion of a feminine illusion. To see card this, she is a woman who likes a man's drink. You know, beer is a man's drink, and isn't affected by it. Doesn't get drunk. Doesn't have to pee. She, but she's right, and she just she takes rink on, and she yeah, and she's and then she's also duplicitous, and she's femme secretive, and we're gonna back to our noir. Yeah, she retains her grace under pressure even when handcuffed. The thing is, though, the thing about the beer and not peeing may just be Brodigan's stroke of genius. Because it seems like everything else is kind of a recognizable icon of the mystery novel. I mean, the tough Irish cop. I don't know if he's Irish, but just the tough cop who's got this code. And and then the sort of creepy morgue attendant. Sorry to all morgue attendants out there. I don't mean to imply anything. But there is that sort of a a stereotype in in literature, too. Right. right, right. And so the socialite, the rich socialite, yeah, we're still there. She drinks beer and doesn't go to the bathroom. Then we're like, where does that come from? (laughs) Is is there some sort of inside joke that we just missed? There's also some 70s humor in here that, well, I mean, just some of the things that Seacard says that you probably wouldn't now, even in a novel like this. Maybe you would. Maybe. I'm not going to be able to think of a specific example. <laughs> You're talking about the sexism? Because he kind of dances around the racism angle. And what he says about the landlady. and Yeah. You know, yeah. She, yeah. yeah, it's pretty horrible stuff. It is. Yeah, he's a pretty horrible guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's all focused through Seacard's point of view. Yeah, he's going to uh, end up... It probably could happen today. Owing Pegleg a lot of money after wrecking his car. Yeah. He ends up giving the 500 to the black guys? I'm trying to remember at the end. Does he walk away with any cash? I don't, I don't remember. I think he ends up giving the 500 to the, the... The Smiley's gang comes up at the end and... 
He has to he has to fork over the cash, doesn't he? I don't know. I, I was, was I sorry. Was, I was off on a trip thinking was, about how many times the word Babylon is. Were in you this dreaming novel. of Babylon? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about the word Babylon in the novel. I yeah. mean, it, it's just it's I, all over the place. I'd never heard of this novel when you brought it up, and you said the title "Dreaming of Babylon." I never envisioned that it was going to be about dreaming of Babylon, and then and the narrator was going to say repeatedly, "Whoops, almost dreamed of Babylon again." Right. <laughs> it's right. So ridiculous. <laughs> I just can't even. Well, and Nebuchadnezzar yeah, he's got to show up. being a character in this thing. The Hanging Gardens, the gate, the Ishtar gate, maybe even is mentioned specifically. Brodigan could have picked uh, Nabopolazar no. or Nebuchadnezzar, and he went with Nebuchadnezzar. I don't there's, know. He, I think there's not a, there's not much else. I guess is my point as far as Babylonian culture that, and that's because Seacard doesn't know. Right, <laughs> probably he knows. He's heard, I think that's why yeah, he's heard of the Hanging Gardens, and that's why we end up with sort of a. 1942 version of Babylon. Yeah, yeah, I think it's fair. <laughs> I think it's fair. I think Seacart just needed to make it a novel or write a script for a movie, and he'd have been fine. Kind of like the uh, the character from Williford's book. Just yeah, oh. the two of those wow, guys yeah. would get along really well <laughs> together, wouldn't they? Different wow. different time periods, but you know, I was. <laughs> I hadn't even thrown Hudson into this whole quagmire. Hudson yet. should have just met C card. The two of them should have worked together on a script. Where does Hudson? Where does the C card fit with Hudson? Yeah, that's a because yeah, they both have that. I mean, have insight, but somehow Williford's are contemptible wasn't, characters. Wasn't I don't think Williford's book was you know had the the same kind of absurdist intent, but. Yeah, that, the the character, the narrator in in that one, yeah, you know, as far as the crime and the thing like this, this is Seacard and, and Hudson are. But there's some ridiculousness well, but, too. The Santa suits, right? And, the Santa suits, you that, know, and, and dancing with his mother. And let's not forget, Seacard's always talking about his, his mom. mother. Yeah, and it ends yeah. with the mother being the yeah, sort there's of. A, there's a there's a different tone to the narrator's you know kind of mental psychosis and self obsession between that book and this one, but they're still kind of similar. Yeah. You know, they're, they're both obsessed with, with money, with their relationship to other people, with getting to this thing. And, and, and you know, Hudson wants to make a movie, and Seacard wants to dream of Babylon and have an office with a hot secretary who blows him. You know? Right. And they're both completely incapable of actually doing what needs to be done ultimately to... You know, Hudson, well, Hudson won't compromise, and this guy won't stop with the masturbating, basically. The mental masturbating, which is what Dreaming of Babylon is. It's <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. That was a, a, a pleasant uh, distraction after, you know, feeling like I had smoked pot through pension. Feeling like feeling like it, yeah. I Maybe know. I should have smoked pot when I was. You reading didn't. Pitching. No. Oh well. No wonder. Um, how known is? Because I think that this should come up in more. Dreaming of Babylon should come up in more discussions about the detective genre. Because I well, the only reason I know about it is a longtime customer was a big Brodigan guy, and I remember grabbing this on an OP search for him. And he came back in and told me how great it was. and So then, I, of course, I had to go get one and read it. Who was it? Who was what? The customer. Oh, we shouldn't. I probably oh, okay. shouldn't. Yeah. 
but yeah. We'll do that in special session. Save that for. <laughs> um, That's how I got win. We need it. to. We need this. The, the script. Someone needs to turn this into a film. What a funny Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> might be able to do that. Would you have to have some kind of a voiceover for it? I don't know. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, that'd be tough. V- voiceovers can be a, a a challenge. They can really fuck something. Do up. Do you know what happened in the Inherent Vice movie? Have you seen that? Huh. No. There's a really well see it, and there's a really interesting use of voiceover in that film that goes directly to what you're. Yeah. saying that will surprise you. You won't be you'll be surprised who's speaking and which lines are being spoken. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you can do it. It's just it's it works in Goodfellas. Yeah. Pretty well. But yeah. Well, there's enough of him talking and dialogue that you could write it into the script and have a reason for him to explain his I almost think you want C card to actually talk directly to the audience at certain points you know how because it's so crazy he, when you know he's dreaming of nana durad or whatever right. he kind of steps out of it and says but i had the dream of nana durad <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess i think it would work someone needs to buy the rights get the brodigan estate on the line yeah jj abrams can that be his next project <laughs> Yeah. Can we just do an anti J.J. Abrams podcast where we do you have a problem with Mr. No, Abrams? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. Any last any last <laughs> this words? Is like the only one we've really kind of wandered off to the point where we're kind of hey. kind of random at this point. Um so we're doing Lawrence Osborne on yep, the last the, one returning to Marlowe. Only to sleep. Yep. And of course we'll and we'll do that one and then we'll do our, our our summation roundup of, of everything. And Oh, right. In the next episode. Right, right. The last one. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Talk about the books that we like the best and so forth. Yep. Yeah. I think we've covered a, a wide enough swath. I'm sure there's some little subgenre out there. That's really cool that we missed, but yep. hitting something like this to me, like I said, this is so great of you to bring this in here. Cause I think that is just an interesting twist on the, the whole notion of detective fiction that, so yeah, we'll Should have be included. We'll have Osborne's little coda taking us back to the beginning, and then you know, like I said, we'll we'll go over um, you know the summary of everything, and also kind of maybe cover some of the stuff we missed, some of the stuff we left out, and you know, kind of point to other things. Particularly if we want to discover more, or if you think I should discover more, since this was kind of to point me around the genre a little bit more, our listeners, whoever they may be. So both of them, both of them. <laughs> Right. <laughs> any last uh, any last words? Now we can dream of Babylon. All right. It is. Yes. Thanks, guys. The Outrider Podcast is hosted by me, Jason Quinn Malott, and produced by Heather Ann Eden. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and go there to please rate us and give us a review, or you can get the show straight from our host, podbean.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.